been on a journey together and um, certainly I have really uh, felt a lot of appreciation uh, for everyone's efforts and the generosity that has come into uh, making this all possible and the level of welcome and receptivity and joy that I see in your eyes seeing me which you know on one hand, I think I'm just me. You know, I'm just me. <laughs> and on another hand, it's like sometimes I struggle trying to place myself in a framework of how all the things that I do fit in are integrated. So tonight is my attempt, we'll see if I am successful or not, at creating a framework uh, that um, makes some sense out of um, some of the various different approaches of what I've been doing and, and why I've been wanting to do it that way. So before I talk about the approaches to practice that we've been engaged in, I just want to step back a bit and talk about things from a little bit of a historical perspective. So when we look at the time of the Buddha 2,600 years ago, um, you know, it was a traditional society. And uh, some of the characteristics of a traditional society uh, was that loyalty and honor and valor were like really, really highly regarded values. And supporting the leader was something that people did no matter what the costs were. And in a traditional society, there were very clear designated roles and uh, those roles were often passed on according to your ancestry. So if you were born into a, uh, a, a guild of people who worked with metal, then that's what you would do your whole life and that's what your children would do. There was no sense of having the opportunity to change your position based on your desires or your will. And the sense of who individuals were there was no sense of individuality. Individuality was very much defined by the clan and the village and the trade of what you had, and that was passed on for generations. Um, there was a profound sense of spirituality, and lots of things were considered sacred, but the sacred was very divorced from the world. So yeah, things like sexuality and spirituality were in diametrical opposition to each other. And so a lot of the aims of spiritual life was to transcend that which as it was of the world. And when there was that sense of transcendence, then there was a sense of, well, that's the ultimate goal and nothing else is really important. So one of the fundamental assumptions in the traditional world is, is, is that if there is inside realization or attainment on the domain of the transcendent, then that is the penultimate and nothing else will supersede that. So that's one of the kind of mm, assumptions of the traditional world. 
one of the things that happened with the traditional world was is, is that mm, um, justice was very much determined by social standing, influence, and how much wealth you had. And so people who had more wealth and social standing had more justice than people who did not. And um, it was also an agrarian society where people had small farms and they lived close to the land and were very much dependent upon the farms uh, succeeding in order for basic needs to be met. So a, a traditional society had many components of it which are very different from what we find in a modern society. So when there was an industrialization and there was mass migration from rural areas into city areas. And as a result of this migration, then the village system, the clan system, the family system, the extended family system was dismantled. And because of moving into industry rather than in staying in an agrarian context, people became reliant on um, uh, factories and uh, jobs like that and they were not so self-reliant on subsistence farming uh, in order to survive. When, when this shift happened in the modern world, there was an, a, like a pandemic uh, experience of despair, purposelessness, meaninglessness, and that happened across people of all classes and of all economic backgrounds and of all education levels. And it was the first time in the world that there was such a huge, widespread sense of lack of meaning and lack of purpose. And alongside the purposelessness, there was a massive increase in issues around addiction, addiction to power, to sexuality, to acquisition of possessions for no other purpose than people didn't know what else to do with themselves. And with the, the shift to the cities and the dismantling of the villages and the clan system and the extended families, then the individual began to raise as the like penultimate thing to work towards. And reason became the religion of the day. So anything that was rational was worshipped, and anything that was not rational was demonized. And so there was this sense that if it was... um, And then life was reduced to brute, senseless material rather than being suffused with the divine and the sacred. Now... These are some of the challenges and the negative things, but also alongside some of these challenging things, there are also positive things. Some of the scientific uh, research and innovations meant that child uh, mortality went down. There was uh, eradication of major diseases that had wiped out huge populations of people. And then there was the whole movement towards Uh, equal rights. And so in the modern time, we have seen uh, women and people of color and lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people having rights and advocacy that never existed before. And so um, we can see, and then we can also see that certainly it's not absolutely true, but it moves more towards the case 
that the law of the land holds for everybody and is not preferencing specifically people who have wealth and status and privilege, though obviously we have some room for improvement. <laughs> so we moved into a modern world, and in the modern world, the sense of self is really the kind of determining factor where our own will, our own efforts, is what is able to determine our livelihood and our status in life, which is a radical departure from what it was like in a traditional context. When we enter a postmodern world, which we are in now, um, what, what we can see is interest in integration. And so there's a, there's a, 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 one of the other things that happened in the modern world was there was a, 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 a quite a significant questioning of authority so that it wasn't that the, the leaders were followed no matter what, but the leaders were questioned, and if the leaders did not um, live according to their own values, then that was uh, considered very problematic, whereas in a traditional society, those kinds of issues didn't arise in the same kind of a way. So when we come into a postmodern world, then we can see threads of interest in integration, where there's an interest in coming into harmony with nature. And, you know, certainly we're in a, a desperate crisis right now with the climate destabilization and the chaos that that's causing in the world. And we can also see that in, our, in, a, in an intricative world, there's an interest in bringing together things that were separated so there's an interest in seeing spirituality in our daily lives, spirituality and not separating that from our sexuality, seeing uh, the, the way these things can come together and integrating um, our deepest understandings into many different components of our life rather than having it be compartmentalized. And in a postmodern world, I feel that there's a, a much greater interest in attunement, awareness of the importance of genuine, authentic community and living with, with, with values that are really congruent. And so I, you can, I can see these kinds of threads that are, that are weaving together. So how does this... How does this relate to why I am the way I am and teach the way I teach and what we've been doing here? So, um, I feel really blessed to have spent 20 years living in a monastery with the kind of uh, intensity of training that that entailed, uh, an enormous amount of goodness. And I could spend quite a long time talking about the blessings that came from that. But I can also see that one of the challenges of being in that situation was is, is that you know I'm a modern woman with a modern education living in a culture that comes from a traditional society. And in some ways, the traditional society hasn't caught up with the modern world. So some of the ways in which the hierarchy plays out, some of the discrepancy between status between men and women, some of the... Um, privileges that come with that status, 
all of those things are very characteristic of a traditional society and they don't jive so well in a modern world. Okay? But also, one of the things that's very true in a traditional context is there's a deep-seated belief that if there is understanding and insight on a transcendent level, that that insight will translate into all other domains. And if it doesn't translate, it doesn't matter, because the only domain that really is of importance is the transcendent one. And I saw that playing out in small, medium, large, and spectacular ways in the monastery. And I have seen enough to recognize that that belief is actually not congruent with what my own deepest understanding is. It's not congruent with it. Profound insight I have seen in people who are profoundly disconnected with other domains, and that profound disconnection caused profound disturbance. Okay? So, one of the people who I've come in contact with over the last 15 years is Ken Wilbur and his writings on integral theory and integral maps. And I don't know if Ken Wilbur is familiar to you and what he's done. But Ken is a syncretic genius. He's one of these people who puts together everybody else's maps and from everybody else's maps synthesizes a super, super, super map that includes all maps. And, you know, the personal story was is that he's been thinking about these things since he was, like, well, I don't know how, how long, forever. And he decided that there must be a way in which all of these different maps of all of these different systems have to somehow relate to each other. So he locked himself in his house with 230 legal pads with every single system of every single method of every single everything that he read about and he's like what this person reads is like scary and so he had on the floor 230 legal pads of all of these different systems that had to do with psychology had to do with development of consciousness had to do with um, evolution of, of culture had to do with every single thing that of any map that he had ever encountered and for three years, he looked at these 260 legal pads trying to figure out what was the one map that held all of these maps and broke the code before he completely cracked up, which, you know, within a situation like that, it's touch and go. <laughs> and so the map that he had found was the integral map which includes the domain of the interior, the relationship with people, the relationship and description of the world, and social evolution. And in these four quadrants, he could fit all of the other maps. And within integral theory, it's really important to take note of all of the different quadrants. Okay? And not to assume or presume that development and insight in one quadrant is necessarily going to translate into another quadrant. Okay? So within the integral map, it's articulated very precisely that you cannot presume that the domain, the interior domain, the insight into the transcendent is necessarily going to yield 
insights into any other aspect of the map. And so what that means in kind of like a practical way is, is that I might have insight, but it still might mean that I have developmental issues I haven't sorted out. Or it might mean that I have issues around power that I need to resolve. Or it might mean that my capacity to be empathetic for people who are struggling in a way that I don't necessarily have a resonance with, the insight in one domain doesn't necessarily translate into empathy in another domain. Okay? So, as a map, it's a brilliant map. And as a map, I haven't seen any other map that comes close to being as comprehensive or as clear or as articulate as this map. And so it's, it's really, really helpful. And what I observed in living in the monastery was what the map was describing, which was that you can have people with very, very profound insight, but they haven't navigated all of the different domains. And so we've got a traditional culture that comes from Thailand that hasn't actually caught up to speed with America or, or Europe. And we've got people with individual issues in their own personal psychology. And so even though the insight that they speak about is profound and genuinely liberating, in their own personal lives there can be really large gaps around blind spots that they haven't come to terms with and when they're in positions of power not actually seeing the consequences of those blind spots and how damaging it is for the community around them. So having purview to all of this myself, living with this for 20 years in the community and watching in my own mind and heart my own challenges with trying to see what's happening here and how come the meditation that I've done for all these years doesn't necessarily illuminate some of these psychological um, developmental issues that, that are, res- are resilient to not changing, you know? How is it all kind of fitting together? And so for myself, what happened at some point, and I'm not sure exactly when, was my commitment to awaken superseded my longing to belong in the group. And so for me, what I was interested in was finding you know, answers, finding a way out of suffering, no matter what it took. And I didn't care what tools I needed. It was like that was my first priority, no matter if it took me out into edgy territory. And it plenty well did. I can assure you, you know. And then as I started getting more skill and resource and being able to look at these from other perspectives and then also seeing that this is, this is a natural consequence of a, a, um, a bias that's, that presupposes that transcendent insight is going to translate into all of the other domains which is one of the carryovers from a traditional society and a traditional model and a traditional map. Is That is the fundamental assumption, is that if we get the transcendent understood, accessed, realized, nothing else matters. So, my own personal experience begs to differ. 
you know, that it actually matters a lot, that we actually keep an eye to make sure that our development is coming up to speed, that our issues around power and authority and all the rest of that are conscious and being handled, that the stuff that is shadow is made conscious and held deliberately so that it's not coming out into relationships with others and relationships of power in the community unconsciously. So in my own world, I have certainly have a tremendous amount of respect and appreciation for contemplative uh, truths as being uh, essential and fundamental, but not exclusive. It's not the only truth that needs to be attended to. And part of my journey has been a really deep exploration of body and body awareness and subtle energies and the relationship with the land as a way of coming in contact with some of these other domains that I didn't have easy access to. And through that, through subtle energies and relationship with the land, I've got more appreciation and sophistication for contemporary understanding of psychology, contemporary understanding of trauma, contemporary understanding of brain plasticity, uh, contemporary understanding of, of attachment strategies and how resilient they are and how they play out in different circumstances when there's triggers for them and understanding how the cultures have evolved and how this evolution of culture is not something that is automatically presumed with deep insight. So just as an example, you know, in the suttas, the Buddha speaks very clearly about how to take care of slaves. Now, in a modern world, we don't have slaves. It's not considered acceptable to have slaves. Now, there's economic slavery and there's sexual slavery and there's all kinds of ways that we still do have slaves, but the old-fashioned way of kind of having slaves is not okay. So even though the Buddha talked about ways that you take care of slaves, we cannot say, well, because the Buddha said that if you take care of slaves this way, then we can justify it's okay to have a slave as long as we take care of them that way. Because the culture has evolved. Okay? So we have to see that the culture's evolution has gotten to a different level from where the Buddha was when he was speaking and where those kind of instructions were given from. Now, that's not only true around slaves, it also has to do around relationship with authority and who gets to make decisions and places of inclusivity. There's all kinds of areas that where the culture has evolved and it's different now than the way it was in a traditional context, okay? And yet, coming from a tradition, a Buddhist tradition, out of a traditional context, where the ethos is, is that if you protect the tradition, you protect the teachings, okay? Then there is a... Um, uh, um, uh, 
an inability to differentiate what is respectful to the teachings and what is respectful to the traditional culture that this came out of that needs to be uh, differentiated. Okay? Can you see that? What's respectful to the teachings and what's respectful to the culture that this came out of are different places of respect. And because many of us who've received the teachings have such an enormous sense of gratitude, then the thing that we don't want to do is be disrespectful. But that being disrespectful often doesn't have the discernment of in which way are we being, apparently being disrespectful. Is it to the teachings? Or is it to the traditional context that it came out of by questioning what is needed now? Okay? So, all of this stuff is contextual. Like I was saying, it's very contextual to say be upright and be diligent. That's contextual in a society where people are really good about being relaxed and really good about not having a sharp focus, okay? And we take it into North America, and Minnesota has particular extra stars in the realm of diligence and follow-through and uprightness. And you need extra permission. It's like, how many of you have I talked to about playing and relaxing and taking it easy? And, you know, it's like there needs to be a context in which the teachings are offered which are equal to what's actually happening on the ground. Okay? All right. So this is kind of like overview of history and culture and the teachings and where it comes. And then why is it that I'm so wild? Exactly this reason. Because I come through a traditional context that was trying to bridge a traditional world and a modern society with people who were not able to have these conversations. And rather than open up, they would shut down. And rather than say, let's talk about what's important, they'd say, if you don't like it, there's the door. My way or the highway, if you don't want to bow to the hierarchy, if you don't want to bow to the patriarchy, there's the door. Okay? So it's like, you know, what happened? These loving, compassionate, wise beings, and all of a sudden, what's going on here? What's happening? Okay? So, holding all of this, and trying to make sense out of all this, and process all of this, for some reason, I haven't thrown the baby out with the bathwater. I haven't said, you know, forget monasticism, forget Buddhism. I've said the Buddha did not teach that. The Buddha taught awakening. Okay? What is awakening in our context? What is needed now? What do we need now? What allows me to open my heart? What allows me to let my body feel alive? What allows me to feel like I'm not living underneath a 10,000 pound stone? Can I look? Can I ask? Can I articulate? Can I speak about it? Can I embody it? Can I teach it?
So what I am doing is teaching an integral path. It's an integral eightfold path. Now, the classic path is not to be dismissed and thrown out the window, but the classic path needs to be understood in the context of where we are now. All right? So if we look at the Eightfold Path, the eight components of the Eightfold Path, our right view, right intention or right thought, right speech, right action, right effort, right livelihood, right concentration, and right mindfulness. Right is a, a common translation of the word sama. And one of the ways that I like the translation that resonates with me more is connected. What is connected view? Okay? So connected view in the classical sense of it is understanding the Four Noble Truths. It's understanding suffering. It's understanding the cause of suffering. It's understanding that when we pay attention to the cause of suffering, we experience release from suffering. And it's the path that supports the release of suffering. It's the Eightfold Noble Path. When I look at connected view from an integral perspective, it has to include the shift that the inner domain is not the only domain for which insight needs to be realized. It has to shift the fact that when there is insight on this inner and transcendent domain, that it doesn't automatically translate into all of the other domains. And so as a result of that, there's an interest in keeping an eye on what's happening psychologically, in terms of power dynamics, in terms of structure, in terms of what's happening with my capacity to be in empathy or out of empathy with other people that I might not have that much familiar with, and in terms of developing structures that are congruent with my deepest understanding. It's integrated. It's not presumptuous. The second of the Eightfold Path is right intention or right thought, or connected intention and connected thought. And it classically, these are the intention towards harmlessness, towards renunciation, and towards generosity. Right intention, right thought, right action, right livelihood. The first of the five precepts is to refrain from killing. And as I was talking about on that first night, it's refrain from doing harm. Right livelihood is to refrain from engaging in any kind of livelihood which causes harm. So we have harmlessness showing up in terms of intention, in terms of precepts, and in terms of livelihood. And in my world, I cannot divorce that from what's going on in the world and what's happening with the kind of absolute crisis with climate destabilization as a result of fossil fuel usage and the fossil fuel industry. And so when I have a commitment to living harmlessly, it isn't only what I say and the actions of my 
what I do to you, but it's how I'm interacting in the world. Now, at the time of the Buddha, they didn't have global corporations where you had sweatshops in Bangladesh with children working, making products that we were buying in North America. The things that you bought oftentimes were the things that you got from the village. You could see the way people were working and the ethics that they had and the way that they treated their employees. It wasn't as complicated as it is now in terms of understanding where the products we buy come from and what are the ethos behind supporting them and whether they're congruent with our sense of harmlessness or not. But that's one of the ways in which a community that's committed to harmlessness can support each other. Everybody doesn't have to do all of the research yourself. You can figure out what you are interested in knowing about and share that information communally. Which companies have ethical practices that are worth supporting and which do not? Which companies invest in fossil fuel, which do not? Which companies support green energy, which do not? Which companies are supportive of local businesses, local food production, local uh, community efforts, which do not? And so as a community, together, you can figure out if that's of enough interest and value to divvy it up as to figure out, well, how do you use this information in a way that every single person isn't having to do all of this research independently, so that you can be in integrity with what you're doing and buying and how you're living, but not totally overwhelmed with trying to come up with the information. The intention or thought towards renunciation. You know, I think that this point here, classically as well as contemporarily, is going to be really helpful as we navigate um, the kinds of shifts that need to happen in the next few decades. How much is enough? How much clothing is enough? How much heat is enough? How much space in our house is enough? How many cars is enough? How many vacations is enough? How much is enough? Where does our contentment come from and how much is enough? And as we have our lives become simpler and find that in more simplicity we can still have a tremendous amount of well-being, connection, and sense of fulfillment, and sense of engagement. Then the kind of North American idea that more is not enough begins to fall away. And as that shifts into something that has more basis in contentment, and more basis in something that is sustainable, then our capacity to live with ease and well-being and contentment and sustainability is going to have an impact. 
in terms of connected speech, you know, again, when, you know, when I went to the monastery and everybody else who went to the monastery that I knew, you know, we had a very deep aspiration to practice. But none of us thought of, you know, becoming uh, skilled in facilitating meetings or conflict resolution or, you know, that was like the furthest thing from our idea of what living in a monastery was going to be about. And yet the reality is, is, is that when you're living with people, you need to be able to figure out how to resolve things. And, you know, for the first, I don't know how many years, the M.O. that we've heard from our teachers was just shut up and watch your mind, you know. It was like there was somehow, if you could just be silent long enough on your cushion, then everything necessary would resolve. It's the same premise, that the insight on a transcendent level is going to naturally translate into all other domains. And the nuns basically said, this is absolutely not working. This is not true. We need to learn how to communicate. We need to learn how to develop the skill to have meetings. We didn't know. So we pulled in resources, nonviolent communication. We pulled in facilitators to help us. We, we started learning how to hold space for different kinds of meetings, to have heart meetings, to have business meetings. We learned how, over years, to hold open the space so that people of hugely different opinions could be, their views could be heard and accepted, and we could find what was best for the whole community. That was never part of any of our original idea about what monastic life was about. And yet it was the reality of community life. We had to learn how to do that. So one of the things that I feel really um, important is, is, is that in communities that have a lot of emphasis on silence and on meditation, it's not often the case that there are relational practices that support working through this stuff in terms of one's practice. And so practices that augment, that support bringing mindfulness into communication, bringing skill into communication, bringing leadership into meetings is helpful for communities to consider how to do that. What does that look like? And so for a year and a half, I was part of the, I was a guest in the Insight Dialogue Teacher Training Program, which is a, a clear way of, of bringing the qualities of mindfulness and meditation into the experience of inquiry and communication. And so rather than having everything silent, we would have maybe three sittings a day that were silent, and the rest was practicing bringing the qualities of meditation into communication. And we're not experienced at that. It's not automatic that just by having deep insight and having powerful retreats that we know how to engage and relate with each other. In fact, sometimes the opposite is true. The more inward we can be, the less we know how to engage and relate with each other. And yet relationship is a really important part of communication. So, 
when we look at the five precepts, you know, as I was talking on the first night, it isn't only about the gross manifestation of unskillful behavior, but these subtle and very nuanced ways of relating to the world and within. And, you know, I'll speak more tomorrow, but just, for example, the topic of sexuality. You know, so in a traditional context, sexuality and spirituality are, are diametrically in opposition to each other. And, you know, the, the aim is to transcend one's, one's worldly desires so that you can arrive at a, a nibbana, which is liberating. And in my own world, my own life, my own body, my own experience, I have, there's been an enormous amount of effort in both healing as well as integrating and opening up the life force, the subtle energy, the understanding how this is not separate from sexuality and how this is absolutely connected to movements of the heart and completely related to the capacity to concentrate, to focus, and to see clearly. So, for me, these things are very intimately connected and important and worthy of interest and inquiry to bring them together. So, for me, it's like, you know, the spiritual component of my life is part of every aspect of my life. It isn't separate. And so it's this kind of understanding that I, that, that for me is, an, is part of an integrated path. And, it, and I have lived as a celibate for decades, but it, it, it this understanding does not require being involved in sexual relationship. It's involved in integrated relationship where we're seeing the whole of our mind and body and spirit as part of our path, independent of our precept level or our, our choices in relationship. In a connected effort, in a classical way, that is refraining from unskillful thought and developing skillful thought. But I think uh, connected effort in uh, an integrated way is not only looking at the interior domain, but beginning to bring elements that tie in all of the domains. How is it that we can develop communication? How is it that I can know more about the subtle energies of my body? How is it that these can translate into structures in community that are congruent with our values? How is it that we can look at things in a global perspective and move in a direction that is healthy and sustainable? It's not just interested in my own thought. It actually opens up the spectrum to a wide global view that includes everything. I mentioned right livelihood or connected livelihood in contact and connection with what's happening in the world and in terms of what we buy and what companies we um, utilize and what impact that has and the complexity of that. You know, it's not 
we're not in a simple world where everything is um, just, you know, all of the information is contained within the village that you just need to ask anyone. They will know the answer. It's not as simple as that any longer, you know. And yet, because it isn't simple, doesn't mean that there isn't room to inquire about how, how to engage in a way which is genuinely harmless and genuinely congruent with one's deepest aspiration and values. To live towards awakening for oneself and for all beings. What does that look like? In a classic uh, context, uh, right concentration is developing the jhanas to be able to let the mind absorb into sustained focus with thought and without thought and then developing the rapture that comes from sustaining that and allowing the rapture to then fade away and just being with the happiness that comes. Allowing the happiness to fade away and just being equanimous. So the kind of jhana instructions are oftentimes uh, very, very uh, dependent on very specific conditions. And for many people, prolonged practice, and some people don't have an easy access to jhana. But I also um, am curious that when we put as much time as we need into playing and relaxing, then I think that our capacity to concentrate also increases uh, enormously. And so part of the reason why many of us have had such a hard time with jhanas is because we're trying to get there through efforting and we need to get there through relaxing, lightening up, and playing. And we haven't figured out how to do that yet. And so then when the mind opens because of ease, it's very stable and very steady and very focused. It's very different from when it's trying to arrive at there from, from efforting and from grasping. But in our daily life situation where we don't often have long periods of, of retreat time and life is a bombardment of input and complexity and details and decisions and things to figure out and um, it's just really important to take time every day where there's some time set aside just for dropping in and touching what is and responding to it in a way which is really skillful. Classically, right mindfulness is considered the four foundations of mindfulness. We consider the, uh, the ability to pay attention to our body and to our posture and to our breath and to our walking and to our sitting and to our standing and lying down. It's to reflect on the components of our body and the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral the objects of our mind and the way that we're relating to the objects of our mind. And then the way in which all of these things can be grouped in terms of categories of Dhamma. And one of the things that is often the case for people is is that there's a, a, a confusion between concentration and mindfulness. 
And so after a retreat, when conditions are ideal and we've got a schedule that's established and food that's prepared and lovely people ringing bells and very little things to decide, it's often that our, our, our systems settle and there's a natural concentration which develops. And we associate that natural concentration with mindfulness. And then when we leave, and we get in the car, and we're driving on the highway, and the telephone rings, and then we realize that there's bills that need to be paid, and that there's things that need to be sorted out, and then all of a sudden we've got an enormous amount of decisions and input and complexity, and, you know, 45, 145 emails to go through, you know, and, you know, a day to do that and get ready to go to work and catch up with the family. And it's like, you know, and then one feels like something terrible has happened because the concentration's not there. Well, it's normal that the concentration's not there when the conditions change. Okay? But mindfulness is the ability to be with what is. And if what is is a feeling of overwhelm or a feeling of confusion or a feeling of um, complexity, that's correct mindfulness. It might not be the kind of subtle, refined details that we know when we're concentrated, but we can know overwhelm is overwhelm. We can know complexity is complexity. We can know our body feeling tight and tense as a body that feels tight and tense. It doesn't have to be refined in order for mindfulness to know it and see it for what it is. So that mantra, what's happening now and how am I relating to it, is sufficient to navigate the change from uh, deep concentration to lesser concentration and through the various different experiences as we come back into picking up the details of daily life and navigating them and then feeling and figuring out what's needed. But certainly, you know, having time with retreat, having time with teachings that are uh, useful, having time with community that is supportive and congruent, all of us can feel how powerful that is. And so, you know, seeing what makes sense in terms of connecting up with people and, and, and continuing conversations, staying in contact. You know, one of the things about the common ground that I've seen so far, it's, it's a, a remarkably cohesive community with an enormous amount going on and a lot of really fine, committed people. And that's an enormous asset, you know, that can just be there to plug into. But if, you know, part of what got uh, opened up for you on this retreat feels useful, then find ways of continuing conversations that support that. You know, what does that look like? What does that mean? What would those conversations be? You know? Some people got interested by the bowing and chanting practice. You know, that it opened up something in one's heart that felt um, useful. And just, you know, take note of that. Don't, don't forget that. So, in the, just tying back with the map, and then I'll see if I can wrap up again. So, in the modern world, you know, when rationality became the religion of the day, 
then anything that was not considered rational was considered somehow lesser than. And I can see that in the modern Vipassana scene, there has been a really um, perfect following of that uh, value. If it's not rational, then it has it's useless. <laughs> and so I think what's helpful is just to understand that there's a difference between something that's pre-rational and something that is trans-rational. So pre-rational is the things that don't make logical sense in the sense of, you know, that's the, the museum that has the dinosaurs and Jesus walking next to each other because... It's trying to fit into a belief system that creation happened in 6,000 years, and so the dinosaur and Jesus had to be walking next to each other, otherwise it couldn't all have happened. So those are pre-rational beliefs. And a pre-rational situation is hard to swallow when you are committed to something that's rational. Yeah? But trans-rational is that there isn't actually a rational framework that you can make sense out of it which doesn't mean that it actually is something that is, is, is good to dismiss. It just means that we don't have a rational framework that we can dot the I's and cross the T's about why bowing would be useful. You know? But that doesn't mean that it isn't actually useful. So transrational and pre-rational are similar in that they're both not rational, but they're totally different in the spectrum of where they're not rational. <laughs> and so in an integrated approach, you don't throw things out that are transrational because they're not rational. You recognize they're transrational, they're connected to the mystery that cannot be explained rationally, and that is part of an integrated map, is that we are in relationship with the mystery that cannot be explained rationally. And so all of this is about saying that, you know, this kind of wild, far-out creature that you see in front of your eyes has got this way because of trying to make sense out of these things, some of which made tremendous sense and some of which didn't make any sense at all. And what kind of way is there of practicing so that they begin to come back into making sense again? How do you make sense out of this stuff? And so that's where my intuition has led me to try and practice with these different domains to see if through doing that there can be a sense of wholeness and fullness and presence and integration in a path of awakening. Well, that's the goal rather than belonging to the group. I don't know if I succeeded or failed miserably, but I'll leave it in your hands to decide. If this gives some context as to, you know, what we have been dealing with historically, culturally, and what I have been dealing with personally in trying to come together, put pieces together, so that what my life is, is a life 
that actually is congruent with my values and understanding what that means and how to do that and how to share that with others. So, I think enough for an evening. <laughs>